Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello, I'm Charles Sims, and welcome to In Social Work. In 1967, a young caseworker from Buffalo, New York, was drafted into the United States Army and subsequently sent to Vietnam. While serving there, he was assigned to a civil affairs unit and was tasked with resettling refugees and assisting individuals injured by the chemical defoliant Agent Orange. Upon returning to civilian life, Ken Herman went back to his social work career. In 1998, by then a member of the social work faculty at the State University of New York College at Brockport, now Professor Herman was asked by the college president to develop a community service program in Vietnam. This podcast explores that effort. The late Ken Herman received his Master's of Social Work degree from the University at Buffalo. In addition to his casework and academic careers, Professor Herman taught seventh grade at an inner city school, provided social work services in Bogota, Colombia, and was an administrator for both public and private child welfare agencies. He also served as the president of the U.S. branch of an international children's rights organization, as a member of the New York State Board of Social Work, as the president of the New York State Society of Clinical Social Work Psychotherapists, and as the director of a veterans counseling center. Professor Herman also made important contributions to international social work in Vietnam. They include directing an NGO that serves the poor in that country, as well as developing the first study abroad program of its kind in Vietnam, the Brockport Vietnam Project. Professor Herman is joined in this discussion by his wife, Susan. Susan Herman, a licensed clinical social worker, is finishing a doctorate at Fielding University and has also worked with students in the program. In this podcast, Professor Herman talks about his return to Vietnam and how his work with local stakeholders and Da Nang University led to the establishment of this unique international social work educational experience. This project consists of a combination of study abroad and service learning. Additionally, he and his wife highlight the project's mission, how it operates, its work in the local communities, and the learning opportunities and takeaway for students. All of these might be instructive for institutions considering similar programs in developing countries. Please excuse the background noise that was part of our recording experience. I interviewed the Hermans in September of 2014 at their home while Ken was living with a terminal illness. We are sad to report that Ken passed away a short time later. However, always the teacher, he hoped that others might find his experience instructive. Hi, this is Charles Sims, and I'm with our guest today, Ken Herman. And Ken, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how did you come to social work? I came to social work because I was looking for a career that would pay me a lot of money. And oh. uh, that that career would be exciting and innovative and challenging and would make me, as I said, filthy rich. And at the time, I was teaching 
seventh grade English in Buffalo in an inner city school, and I was making $14,000. I was offered this job in child welfare as a caseworker, and uh, at $15,300, and who could pass that up? I can definitely understand those kinds of decisions. I made one or two myself. Well, I mean, it was even a TV sitcom at the time that uh, detailed the day of a caseworker, a social worker, in a public agency that ridiculed social work. For some, I thought it made it attractive. And uh, more money, the possibility of notoriety, okay. uh, having a good time like they do in the sitcom. Who could ask for anything more? And you moved from caseworker to, what was your next step? My next step was to get drafted. Yeah, shortly after uh, getting the job in child welfare, I received a letter from the President of the United States. And of course, I thought that was because I was notorious. Well, it wasn't. So shortly thereafter, I appeared at the induction center in downtown Buffalo in July of 1967. And off I went. In July, I appeared, and it was around that summer, I was shipped off to training to prepare to defend my country against communism and evil around the world. So I went to Vietnam. And uh, from Vietnam, I was sent to a small village in central Vietnam, which curiously enough was called civil affairs work, which was the closest thing the Army had to international social work. And uh, it was merely serendipity, I suppose. So I spent a year in Vietnam, after a year of training, and then came back and went back to Erie County Child Welfare. And my job was waiting for me. As you know, you can't get fired from a job because of military service Seriously. interfering. And I was even promoted while I was away. But remember, I knew nothing at all about social work, but it paid $300, $1,300 more than uh, my job in teaching. That's how I got into social work. And I know that you've spent some time as a director of child welfare. Was that correct? I was director of child welfare for this county, the county of Genesee. So you spent some time in Vietnam. Is that how, is that how you found yourself being reconnected with it and kind of developing this program out of the school that you're currently in? I think that was a major part of it, Okay, sure. If one hadn't spent time during the war and hadn't spent time during the war in Vietnam, I guess they would have little even historical reason to be involved with that country, especially if they had no relatives and no friends and no sense of history. So how did you get this to work? How did you get connected? How did you reconnect? I'm guessing you're teaching at this point, and you're thinking about giving back, or how did you decide that, you know, I need to do something to... I don't know, help this country or help the country I was once in. How did you then move that to actually developing a program? Maybe some of it was Catholic guilt. You know, it could well be. I know that uh, I was born and raised in South Buffalo. That was uh, the old Irish ghetto. And from there, I uh, left the faith and took that leap of faith called... I don't believe in God anymore, and I became an atheist. But in becoming an atheist, it freed me from all those obligatory things you have to believe in, all those things you have to do, all those other things you're not allowed to do. 
and allowed me to make choices that I couldn't uh, make during the war. You couldn't make moral choices during the war and uh, not get arrested. You couldn't make moral choices during the war and move along freely, making your own context in which you're going to function professionally or even personally. In addition to that, I suppose, the work I did in, in Vietnam uh, was to resettle refugees, lepers and uh, others who had been uh, exposed to Agent Orange, those who had been abandoned by families where traditionally they would not be, uh, whole communities uprooted and uh, renamed and, and lost to time. And uh, the direction for that was established by the government. Because the government in Vietnam is geared toward the needs of all of its people, not just individual people. It's a whole different context for even social work practice. Because uh, Vietnamese social workers are oriented toward group goals, not individual goals. They're oriented toward meeting the needs of communities, of society. Not necessarily just an individual who's depressed, but a context in society that creates depression. So that it seemed to be the perfect place for me to practice in such a way uh, that we can meet the needs of those that we are obliged to help because of what we did. I mean, you can't walk into somebody's house and trash that house. You can't walk into somebody's house and destroy the, the entire fabric of that family and not have some obligation to do something to remediate that. And that's what we did in Vietnam. We killed millions and millions of people. We devastated millions and millions of childhoods in that country. We destroyed an infrastructure in that country that still hasn't been remediated. And then we merely walk away. What's that all about? You can't do that, I don't think. So because of your experience in Vietnam, you're feeling a need that to give back to that particular country in a concrete way. Yeah. So how did you do that? Mm -hmm. What did you do to allow you to create this? Or how did you connect with the people in Vietnam in a way that would allow you to make the kind of impact that you've been able to do? Well, first of all, you're not the one who decides you're going to make an impact. People receiving help are those that have to decide whether or not you're going to make an impact. You're only a partner in this process. In 1998, I was on sabbatical from uh, the State University of New York at Brockport. And after that sabbatical, I was asked by the college president to do something involving Vietnam for the college. He was mm -hmm. really hinting at starting a study abroad program because nobody had started a study abroad program in Vietnam. So I merely uh, uh, made the, the contact through professional organizations and the U.S. Embassy and the Vietnam Embassy and all the different parties that were involved uh, industrially with trade and so forth in Vietnam mm -hmm. to find out what existed and how do they come to be and what difficulties did they run into in establishing themselves and uh, what made it easier. So it would be the same as establishing any kind of program. On the other hand, I was a bit apprehensive, and I was apprehensive because, you know, we killed uh, millions of people there. And uh, we were still killing millions of people there with uh, the remnants of war. And I didn't know how well I would be received. Now, when I went back in 98 with a couple friends to revisit where I was during the war, we were well received but anybody with a dollar who was going to spend it was well-received. And uh, I didn't know what that would mean in terms of establishing a university program 
in Vietnam. I did know that I wanted to establish it in the city of Da Nang in central Vietnam because it's quieter, it's more peaceful, and it's a lovely place on the South China Sea. And I knew I didn't want to establish it in Ho Chi Minh City, the old Saigon, because it's big and noisy and uh, I didn't feel comfortable there. Nor did I want to establish uh, a program in Hanoi because the people were colder and not as friendly as they were in Hanoi. Simple kinds of criteria, but when you've got to live in a program, you want to make it as simple as possible. At any rate, it was also about 30 miles away from where I served during the war. So I rarely ever saw Da Nang, but it was some sense of identity with the place. So in 98, we established this program, and what made it unique was that the students were providing community service, service learning, which is uh, such a new term, and sometimes we forget that. It's such a new term that it wasn't even used back in 1998. It was community service, not anything else. At any rate, the uh, program was oriented toward social work because I'm a social worker, and uh, those are the areas where I have skill. The college did not want to expand its budget nor its spending, so best to use everything you can that already exists. We met with the university there, the University of Denae, and they weren't uh, especially enamored of our offer. They said if you were French, maybe, but uh, American, I don't know. Which meant, I guess, they gave us another 10 or 15 years of freedom from history that they could forgive and forget. So that's why and where. We began to meet with government groups. That was very difficult to do. It was very difficult for them and for us because they had approved no U.S. programs in central Vietnam. And they uh, had just recently reopened diplomatic relations with the United States. So they were, in effect... Uh, having the past not come and haunt you today, but the past that never went away coming back and haunting you today. So you now have a presence, and you have a presence around service learning. So what kinds of things did students do? Were they all social work students, or did you have students no. from other from other no, disciplines? No, they were from all academic disciplines. In fact, the initial group, I think, had uh, one social work major. And uh, the others were business and history and a variety of other disciplines, which was a very good thing because the group had to be somewhat cohesive. They were trying out something new in what to them was a very stressful situation. And it was for the authorities, too. They followed them everywhere. They didn't quite know what to do with them. I pretended I knew, I suppose, but using skills from a refugee camp many, many decades before is not uh, adequate preparation for such things. In any event, the program has continued, and it's now had about 200 students go through it, maybe wow. a little more. And the service learning, we've now served about 30,000 people who suffer from leprosy to Agent Orange, biological damage to homelessness and natural disasters and so forth. It's the place to go in Da Nang if you have a disability and need help. Go to the Brockport Vietnam Program. So people actually go to the program? Or? They go to the program. The word is spread throughout the community that uh, if you have particular needs, like here, if you have particular needs, you go to a particular social agency to get help. And that's all well and good, but what if you don't fit into the criteria of eligibility? Then you don't get help. 
but we built a reputation and an auxiliary program that operates this way. If you have, say, a problem not being able to walk because of diabetes, and you need medication, but you have no money for that medication, mm -hmm. you go to us, and we give you the money. And that's it. No application, no eligibility, and no concern that you might misuse the money that we give you because we know you won't, and they don't. And uh, it makes it a rather unique kind of an experience for somebody seeking help because they don't have to demean themselves. They don't have to prove they're poor in order to receive support from society. They just have to say they need help. And the center will help them. Yes, yes. give them what they need. A fellow came one day, and uh, he was on a skateboard. He had no legs. And the only way he could ambulate was to be pushed around on this little skateboard. And uh, he was upset because he had gone so many places trying to get some help. And what he wanted was the money that he needed to buy medication to treat his diabetes. We gave him the money, and off he went. A couple days later, he returned. And he returned, knocked on the door, and said that I'm back because I bought the medication. I want to thank you people for giving me the money, but I wanted you to know that you gave me more money than I really needed, so here. And he gave us the change from his buying the, the medication. He said, because somebody else might need it. And we have that response, that reaction, all of the time, every day. Now here, oh, I can imagine the charges that, that would be laid on Everybody, you're just throwing money away and, and the, the mad cap kind of knee-jerk reaction of uh, you're just lazy and the kind of derogatory kind of, of tone. People who are poor don't help themselves, etc., etc. Well, you can't show me one case that we dealt with in Vietnam of the 30,000 we dealt with that have had any instance of that kind of misuse of aid money at all. And I can show you thousands of cases where people just heard about us, came in, got help, and went away smiling, and the world is a better place. Excellent. Well, it sounds kind yeah. of simplistic. It does. But it isn't. Okay. So I guess that leaves me with two questions. Well, actually, I have three. And then I want to bring on board Susan Herman to this discussion. My first question is, and Susan, maybe you can help out with this somewhat, because I know that you've had some experience with the students while they're there. So I understand they, they do take classes while they're there. They're, they're required to take classes here. So what kinds of things would a social work student in your program specifically do? I mean, here we have all kinds of field of experiences. We have service learning where, as I said before, I've done some stuff in the inner city of Buffalo. So what kinds of things would a social work student do in, in your program? It would depend on if they were in field placement, because that adds another layer of requirements for their university of origin, their program of origin, or if mm -hmm. they were strictly sticking to the traditional model that we have for their community service aspect. So some of the things that we do in Vietnam include serving the Da Nang City Social Welfare Center, which is a, basically a one-stop shopping, every kind of social problem that exists in society is housed in that residential center. So we have elderly lepers, we have young lepers, we have elderly disabled, we have young disabled orphans, we have young disabled people of, that are of the age of majority, 
and poor people. So there's about 300 residents in that center, and it's run completely by volunteers who may or may not be trained in advanced nursing care. We have autistic children and adults mm -hmm. that live there that are very, that need tons of socialization, and there's very little skill, but the care that they receive, given the resources they have, is the best they can do. But there are still things that need to be addressed, and that's where our social work students can provide a tremendous amount of skill and service to the community. So we feed them once a week, Mm -hmm. This grand, it's almost ceremonial. Whoever can ambulate to the dining area, the students and our staff make the meal and yep. serve the food. And then they go out into the various residential aspects and they socialize with the people. We do ambulation, walk with the youngsters who are so mentally ill that they are tied to a chair sometimes oh, for safety yeah. reasons. And so for students, this can be shocking because here it would raise issues around abuse and neglect and you can view it that way but really it's the lack of support to make it any other mm -hmm. way so that's a, an area where we fill in that gap and so we work in partnership with the director who's an employee of the city government and so we have to be really careful and diplomatic about what we do and how we approach so students learn tremendous skills around diplomacy and human rights and so it's rich so that's just one community service site that we go to and the schedule is filled with sites so another one is the loving house nursing home which is specifically elderly women and i think there might be one man left there and they do things like socialization they help with the garden that's run by catholic and buddhist nuns they're completely self-sufficient they raise rabbits they raise pigs they grow their own vegetables, they sell flowers at the market, and the students coalesce to help do all of the tasks, activities of daily living, socialization, ambulation for those who can, and just participate in the basic needs of whatever the old women need. And the thing to understand about that is they set the agenda. We don't yes. set the agenda. We don't define what it is we do, they do. Their job as students is to learn how to interface what it is they want us to do with what we do in the profession there and to make some sense of that. So it's a true mm -hmm. learning experience in terms of implementing what it is they've learned in classrooms before they went to Vietnam. It also challenges the student to do things, quote, the Vietnamese way, unquote, so that they define what we are and how we do what we do, and where and when we do what we do. It's our job to learn from that. So while students indeed might interact with clients and client systems in terms of providing aid, and have to come up with new definitions and mm -hmm. novel ways of approaching what it is we do to improve the quality of life in the community, whatever community it is they live in, while all of that is quite true, it's an arduous task. So the program is a difficult program for those who like challenges. It's a godsend, I think. Yeah, I can see how that might be. Mm -hmm. See, if it's an example, the, uh, a couple times a week the students go off in a van and they visit a number of families in the rural area of Da Nang City. Da Nang mm -hmm. City is like a province, like a county here. From that, uh, that social context, the local authorities, social workers there, who are called social workers, identify particularly hard-hit families who have kids who were born 
and born with all kinds of challenges as a result of somebody in their family history having been exposed to Agent Orange. Mm -hmm. Dioxin, the deadliest chemical known to mankind. So these kids may be paralyzed, they may have multiple limbs, they may have all kinds of physically deforming issues, and uh, all of them through a very carefully developed social history that we gain from working with them. All of them are able to benefit from a vast variety of services. It's whatever is available. Susan just mentioned the fact that some of these people who are receiving aid from the students are volunteers. And as volunteers, obviously, to be a volunteer who also sets the agenda, who's also responsive to the culture of Vietnam, gain a tremendous amount of learning within the context of international social work which in some ways is similar to your doing work in the inner city of Buffalo, but in some ways is different. The City Welfare Center is an example. When she says they're staffed by volunteers, it means that agency is run by volunteers with the exception of the director who's hired. So these are well-meaning people who are open to learning, open to change, open to challenges that all of that entails. And it makes for an excitement that I think is unique in uh, providing international work. I think one of the, uh, the most profound areas of learning for students in particular is they're new to the culture, they're new to the language, and the people that we serve don't speak English, and the volunteers don't either. So when you go to a service site, our staff speaks English, but they can't be present for every single interaction that we have with our, with our service population. So you have to, as a student, be completely aware of the use of self and the learning that happens in that, because we go on nonverbals all day long. And when you surrender to that, the learning is unbelievably life-changing. And the skill set that students develop that's applicable to them and transferable to them throughout the rest of their career is to be still within yourself and listen with more than your ears and your eyes. Mm -hmm. Complete sensory experience. And so the benefits and the transferability of the, the skills that they develop there is pretty unique and profound. And they propel their learning years beyond yeah. somebody who graduates and then starts a job right away in the social work profession so that they get ahead of that learning curve a little bit. I would imagine that you'd have to learn how to be comfortable in yourself at that time in order to navigate the differing kinds of relationships that you're going to have to do, that you're going to have to navigate in order to be, to feel that you're making some kind of impact in, with the people you're working with. We actually find that's not necessarily so. It's the anxiety that is raised in, within us students that, and it's our job as faculty and support staff to get, give the right kind of challenge with the right kind of support so okay. that the anxiety isn't unmanageable, but it's in the anxiety where your abilities develop at the greatest speed and that internal change occurs most profoundly. So while the students are there, there's an awful lot of time spent from here with the students who are there. So Skype takes on necessity, the ability to uh, interact with emails and other mm -hmm. kinds of communication methods is constant. The other variable that sometimes might be ignored is uh, the obvious but sometimes overlooked logistical issue of 
Vietnam being 12 hours ahead of us yes. in time. So that uh, if we're teaching a class in Da Nang via Skype at 3 in the morning, our time is 3 in the afternoon, their time. And uh, that means they have to adjust as well as we do. So it's a special challenge even for faculty who are involved. I can see that. I can see myself at 4 o'clock in the morning. That would be an interesting conversation or an interesting teaching experience. <laughs> but the key to success in all of this is fun. If one is interested in really doing something, aside from using the trite cliché of I'm going to change the world, being able to understand you really are. And it's not one of these things of if I change one person, I've therefore changed the world. That's good to say, but it could lead to terrific burnout if you don't see the results of some of what it is you do. And you're not open to people challenging it because we're in a constant state of change with this particular program. It's been going for, what, 16 years, yeah. a long time, but we're continually reworking what it is we do and how it is we're doing. And part of that is recognizing the key members of our team and running this field placement or this uh, international social work experience that they, in effect, become as crucial to the delivery of those services and the development of services as faculty are as the people in charge in Vietnam are. And that all results from building trust. And uh, that trust is key to anybody yeah. who's doing social work in Vietnam. Because generally speaking, there's not too much trust between institutions here and institutions there. The trust is building trust between individuals and among those kinds of real relationships that stand not just the test of time, but the test of changes. We are dependent upon a developing foreign policy in Vietnam, and we have to take that into consideration. They have a very different political system than we have. We have to consider that too. We have different expectations sometimes of people who are working with us. All of that, I could say behind the scenes, presents its own special challenges. But if you find that inviting, if you find that kind of change exciting, then you can't but benefit from the program. As an example for our field placement, the first round of field placement was instituted last year for BSW and MSW students. Two students from the BSW program at Brockport became very excited about the partnership that we were developing with Diné University. And they decided for their macro project that we were going to help institute their field placement program for the university. Now imagine BSWs in the United States taking on that kind of project and even being allowed to consider such a thing. But there, with the partnerships that we have in place, they painstakingly read the literature because we made that part of their educational experience. They adapted all mm -hmm. of the requirements, CSWE, to what would be the equivalent in an emerging profession in Vietnam, made it culturally competent, and sensitive, worked with the faculty at Diné University, and were seen as experts in this particular area. And it was mutually respectful, and they were successful. So this beginning field placement program that the Diné University Social Work Program has, and they right now have, what, about 300 students enrolled in there? Yeah, they do. And part of that, too, is the recognition that uh, it's good to develop a, a direct aid program which is where our heads were all at in the beginning and mm -hmm. continue to be. But what happens if 
things change in such a way that we're not there anymore? What about these thousands of people that we have a commitment to and we've been delivering services for? What happens then? And of course, that's what we call sustainability. How are we going to sustain the progress we've made? In one district, we lowered their poverty rate by 50%. And I say we, I mean the students and the staff and mm -hmm. the faculty and the local authorities. They're the ones who keep track of all these statistics. So it never becomes Brockport blowing its own horn. <laughs> We're scrutinized by the authorities there to see what it is we do and for how many people, the costs, and all these extraneous but sometimes extremely important factors. So to say that uh, at one point the uh, malnutrition rate among kids and families in central Vietnam was about 60% and it's down to 40 now. So that all okay. kinds of progress has been made. So that from that aid that people receive and the guidance that they craft along with us, you have an improved community setting and an improved society. Uh, and those bridges of friendship between America and Vietnam become stronger. Okay. Now, how can that not be fun? I'm with you on that one. <laughs> I'm really with you on that one, actually. I have a couple more questions that are kind of burning in my head. Now, you've mentioned staff a couple different times, and I know one of the issues always when you're thinking about international work or work outside the United States is always logistics. And it sounds like you have there that kind of worked out. So you have places for people to stay and, and that kind of stuff rather than them developing that their own. We have a very solid infrastructure for the program in place. We have two resident assistants who provide all the cooking, all the cleaning, laundry service, and lots of nurturing yeah. for the students. Lots of nurturing. And they know a little bit of English, but they don't need to know English to communicate what they're communicating. Mm -hmm. They're love embodied, our staff, and they've been with us for a very long time, almost since the inception of the program. The uh, program administrator and her assistant have been with the program since it's almost its inception. And their primary job is to manage the program in-country, mm -hmm. keep communication between our governmental partners, and then also instruct the students. And then we have security staff that are there 24 hours a day. So it's completely secure. The students live in the program house. There's a classroom at the top floor of the program house where the faculty from various universities today, they come in to teach the students. And then, so the students have their own, their basic needs are met in such a way that they're restored and renewed on a daily right. basis. So they have a wealth to give because it's challenging work. So that's in place. And then there's lots of social activities that the students get to do that you don't get to do in traditional study abroad programs. So built into the program is a midterm trip to Hanoi, and they get to take in all the cultural sites there with history lessons and political lessons along the mm -hmm. way. They stop at the most beautiful coastal beaches, that, as far as I'm concerned. And then at the end of the program, they go to Ho Chi Minh City, which is the old Saigon, and they do the same thing there before returning home. Then on weekends, in the meantime, between those major trips, are little day-to-weekend trips to cultural centers and heritage areas, beautiful places. It's not all service. That's one of the aspects. It's tremendously intense, but they also get renewed and restored through all the other social exchanges, and they get to interact with 
other university students, Vietnamese university students, and volunteer to teach English. So they get a fair, there's an immediate institutionalized friendship basically waiting for them. One of the things that we found was that uh, a few years ago, Susan decided that maybe we should offer the opportunity to American students who participated in the study abroad program to meet each other. So we Ooh. had uh, a reunion of sorts where students from back in 2000 came here and they met with students who had just returned. So students who had been there 10, 15, 16 years were meeting with students who had just returned from Vietnam. And what was fascinating, I think, to the two of us and anyone else who was involved in that process was that they formed themselves into little discussion groups to talk about not necessarily uh, experiences, but old friends. What's it like in this particular agency where we spend all this extra time because students can do that if they wish? And what happened to this little kid? And what happened to this old woman? And this sort of process that was going on. And what evolved from that discussion was an understanding the real change came because the students were changed. They were transformed. You did a study for an article, Susan, at one time on the transformative effects of this program on the American students and also uh, directly affecting the community and the agency who gave us the opportunity to provide these services. And all of that is of great consequence. So that students who were even preparing to go spent some time sitting with these other students who were a bit overwhelmed, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But they said something that was of interest to me in particular because I served, as you know, in the Army in Vietnam during the war. And one of the now traditional discussion points for non-vets is when I came back, I didn't talk with anybody about my experience because it wasn't kosher. It wasn't the kind of thing people talked about. Non-vets were not to be accepted into society because we were in the minds of some baby killers and doing all kinds of evil things, when in reality we weren't and we didn't, but uh, it did occur. And uh, that whole bridge between a generation that served during the war and young students who are now going back to visit that country had the opportunity to see history evolving. And uh, there were a lot of tears at that reunion. Lots of smiles, lots of friendships renewed and generated from that kind of thing. And that process continues. There is a, uh, a non-profit organization called the Da Nang Quang Nam Fund that helps the Brockport program by accepting donations from people in the community and using those donations to uh, by the medicine and the direct aid that we provide to people who are there and other kinds of services. The value of that kind of an experience has resulted in many of these students being on the board of directors to the nonprofit. Almost all of these students being involved with Vietnam in some way, shape or form after their return here. We have uh, in place in the program the ability and the support so that students who went can return and many of them do. They return as volunteers or they return for jobs teaching English in the community or what have you. This really is a, almost like a continuation. It isn't like just you went there, you were there for five months and you don't have an opportunity to continue to give, but it sounds like people remain connected. Mm -hmm. I guess I have a couple more questions and then I'd like you to kind of think about as we begin to close, 
is there something we miss? Is there something, you, a point that you feel is important that you'd like to share? But before we get there, I'm curious about the state of social, because we've talked about the agencies and about people being different ministries and that along the line. So I'm wondering, are there professional social workers as we would think there? If It sounds like you're beginning to be part of that training of some professional social workers or individuals who have significant social work skills to provide. So I'm wondering if you've had any experience with professional social workers there, and does the university feel that need to help develop that profession? I think we have an ethical obligation, as just as social workers, to develop the profession within their educational and practice community. Now, Vietnam has about 82 million people at this point, and in that population, they have about 30 MSWs in wow. the country. So it, it is relatively new indeed. Mm-hmm. But the government of Vietnam now understands the value of social work, and uh, they've begun to build academic programs to train people to do the kinds of things we've detailed here and much more. And that's encouraging. And these 30 social workers who have MSWs receive them from universities in the States through grants and programs and so forth. We're just part of that evolution that's happening. And it seems like when they first launched the first class, which won't graduate for another couple of years, there was very little attendance. And so when Ken and I last went in January, there was a big push to advertise and promote the profession. Well, our students were so remarkably energetic and excited about the exchange with the Vietnamese students that all of a sudden the enrollment went skyrocketed and now there's 300 students in that BSW program. Yeah, and they've had a lot of publicity with folks from international agencies, international uh, institutions with an international bent, and uh, it's all at the beginning. But... It's generated by those who have gone and those who want to continue to be involved in that growth. And that's very exciting as, a, as an educator and a practitioner to be part of. For faculty at any university with a social work program, if you want to develop research around international social work, this is a prime location to do that. We co-teach basic yes. social work courses between universities. And the students were getting ready to launch co-teaching with Vietnamese students and Rockford students live via Skype. We're in process with that right now. But think about the value, both sides. And you could co-publish with Vietnamese faculty, American University faculty. So there's lots of room for growth. And the faculty at Da Nang University are open for these kinds of collaborations? If there's there's any control that you have to put on, it's bridling that excitement sometimes. Because once you have a successful class, then you have four. And uh, once you have an involved uh, faculty member from here, then you have three that come from that. And it it has a self-generating effect, I think, and not only the practicalities of what it is we have to do that can become cumbersome, but also watching that kind of thing grow and develop and uh, the nurturing of creativity for people who want to get involved in that kind of activity. The definition of the profession, you would think that that would be difficult to come up with. No, it's difficult to restrain in some way. And that's okay. 
because the orientation that we have is toward growth, not toward difficulties in doing this, that, or the other thing, but how do we make it happen? And uh, there are a variety of ways of approaching that, of course, but over time, all of that will find its own level, like water. Mm -hmm. And much of it comes from those who are experienced in doing that kind of thing. And uh, lately, we've had special challenges that face us in continuing to develop what it is we do, but not special challenges that create hardship or problems. They open new doors that we hadn't looked at before. And that is a wonderful opportunity for folks, social work students and educators and practitioners mm -hmm. and anyone else who wants to get involved in that kind of process. It receives all kinds of press attention around the country, in fact, around the world, because it's an exciting new venture and a venture that's cost-effective. Much of the co-teaching has led to people volunteering their time, people becoming as involved as they possibly can, and attempting to straighten all of that out, requiring tremendous skills from Susan. She's the key, you see. Yes. So we have to work harder. <laughs> <laughs> well, any closing statements? I think if as a student or a faculty member or a researcher, you want an opportunity to do something exciting and fun and challenging, this is it. Come on board. Okay. Ken, anything? Well, you know, they say in the old Vietnamese saying that those who invade Vietnam never leave. I guess I'm a prime example of that. <laughs> But the students who repeat their involvement, who remain involved, are equally validate that old saying. Because you can't leave something that became a part of who and what you are. Not when you like it. Not when yeah. you enjoy it. Not when you see the results of that. As sometimes we stumble about. But from that stumbling comes a lot of smiles and a lot of active involvement. And a lot of change. And we say that we provide hope for those who had no hope. We replace tears with smiles, and I think that's true. So if one wants to become part of that, then become part of what we do. Excellent. Thank you both this afternoon. Thanks, Charles. You have been listening to Ken and Susan Herman talking about the College at Brockport's International Social Work Educational Project in Da Nang, Vietnam. We hope you have found this podcast interesting as well as inspiring. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.